You are listening to Radio Albion. to another edition of the Orthodox Nationalist. We are in the very beginning of 2024. This is Matthew Raphael Johnson. And today, we're going to talk about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, someone who I've never dealt with before, but who I should have, for several reasons. Before I do that, though, I want to thank you for your donations. For those of you who have written me and I haven't gotten back to you, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm way behind on that. Do not take it personally. Um, and don't forget to sign up for my Patreon, uh, which has now pretty much exploded in membership since uh, so much material of mine is being is being uploaded. So why, why Jean-Jacques Rousseau? He died in 1778, and he's credited with a lot of things. But the most common one, is that he was the ideological precursor to the French Revolution. As I said before, most cliches or those everyone knows statements are are false. Things like his concept of the general will, which is in capital letters, the concept of the legislature, his basic anti-modernism in his in his very first treatise, just to name three things. Put it outside of of the revolution. He is, as I call him, an eccentric counter-revolutionary. So when you read actual revolutionary writers of the day, Turgot, Helvetius, Cadorcet, people like that, they have certain things in common, but not at the fundamentals. Rousseau can't be squared with the doctrine of the rights of man, in other words. Now, things like his rejection of all of the European governments, the nature of his civil religion, things like that. It's very state of nature theory, although it's very different in Rousseau than it is um, with Hobbes or Locke. Yeah, there may be some indirect connection, but certainly not a not a direct one. And there was certainly no attempt to embody his system in French revolutionary institutions, nor could there have been. And for this, of course, you know, I've been reading Rousseau since, well, now for 34 years. My very first class on political theory started with that triumvirate of Hobbes, and Rousseau. But Rousseau was worth studying in his own right, as eccentric and, and bizarre of a man as he was. And the first thing you come across is his first discourse, the earliest of his political writings. And he goes after the sciences, what used to be called back then the natural philosophy, which we would call in very general terms science, and says that the sciences are incompatible with the virtuous life, and only virtue has value. Now, what he means by that is is eccentric, but virtue requires faith in God, although be very careful, 
because he does have a civil religion, which is not Christian, and is also not separate from the state. We'll talk about that in a minute. For him, virtue is a political matter, and it only makes sense when the community is virtuous. Individual virtue is almost a contradiction. In order to function, virtue presupposes a free society, while a free society requires virtue. But as always, be careful with language. First of all, he regards virtue as the principle of what was termed democracy in a very broad sense. It's inseparable from a free community, but it has to be based around both formal and substantial equality. That ends up being a big deal for him. The knowledge supplied and required for virtue is supplied not by reason, but by instinct, what he calls the sublime science of the simple souls. This is something implanted in the depths of our brains. Now, what he's talking about comes down to the instinct of, of compassion. Like all the social contract theorists, there's man is not inherently social, which is a huge break with the classical tradition. You know, Machiavelli, Hobbes, all believed it. But compassion, this is probably the first time compassion shows up as a political category, and it is, according to Rousseau, the natural root of genuine virtue. That political democracy in a small republic, it's important that sentiment be placed above abstract logic. Again, putting him outside of the revolutionary tradition. But since virtue and a free society imply each other, he also says then that natural philosophy or the sciences and virtue are incompatible. Sciences and freedom cannot be reconciled. Of course, Rousseau's most famous work is the social contract. But in between the first discourse and the social contract is the second discourse or the treatise on the origin of inequality. But besides all of that, the sciences require settled civilization, excess money, leisure. It's essentially a private interest. We're not talking about an establishment here. But all revolutionaries at the time were talking about science. In other words, science can only come about in a society with tremendous inequality, and it reinforces it. Even at its best, the technology that it may create just makes human beings weaker over time. And that itself leads to further egocentrism. Human beings and Rousseau are naturally egocentric, but that is not anywhere close to the basis of political virtue. In fact, egocentrism is the ultimate evil. Rousseau also says that civil society is a functional real... He's talking about a specific place and time. That civil society can't really work unless it has a character. That individuality be produced by specific institutions that people are loyal to because it's been around a long time. There has to be a national philosophy. Um, a manner of, of thinking that can't easily be transferred elsewhere. Again, another problem with the sciences. Science is, a, is based on a universal idea, although he does say not a universal application. 
science or natural philosophy weakens the power of the national idea. It breaks the connection between people and the life and tradition of the community. Again, the opposite of the revolutionary doctrines that would soon become the French Revolution. Science is cosmopolitan and therefore can't ever serve as a social bond in any way. And this is an error made by Marx and Bakunin and so many others. Some variation of ethno-nationalism is implied by the overall argument. But the only thing that can animate a society that cements loyalty is its own national tradition. And the same thing goes for the martial arts. Political society has to defend itself. However, natural philosophy, now of course that didn't turn out in the future, but science is destructive of the warlike and virtuous idea. And the two are connected. Science for him is the pursuit of a private good, but society requires that its members be fully devoted, fully, to the common good, not their personal good. At the time, of course, he's writing in the second half of the 18th century, he associates science with leisure, almost idleness. The very opposite of what the true citizen should be, devoted to his social duties. Now, a good society, again, this is a very anti-revolutionary idea, good society requires that its members adhere to the tradition, uh, how a society um, understands itself. He calls them salutary certainties that hold the society together. Science, however, wants to rot the foundations of everything. But beyond that, Rousseau also held that these truths that empirical science pursues are not necessarily attainable. They're, they're tenuous. The result can only be skepticism or even abulia. The social danger is how the sciences want to prove knowledge in the face of general opinion. A free society implies that its members have abandoned their savage state, or I shouldn't say their savage state, their isolated state, their natural freedom that they had prior to the advent of civilization in favor of a conventional or legal freedom. Two very different things. It's Everything good favors obedience to the laws of the community and uniform rules of conduct. There are no classes here, nor are there factions. Civil society is the transformation of natural man into a citizen. But science pursues its aims without regard to the common will or the common way of thinking. But if the common way of thinking decays, then science decays along with it. Society provides limits to the sciences, and this is a big deal because the science nonsense was part of the revolution of 1789, as well as, of course, the Marxist or anarchist uh, point of view later in Comte in the early 19th century. There's nothing egalitarian about science, and I highly doubt that he would change his view in modern times. Uh, Darwinism would have terrified him. So the sciences here, and I'm taking this from Leo Strauss, science is bad for the good society, but good for the bad society. Still considered as an idiosyncratic pursuit. Now, if society is completely corrupt, science has a role to play. 
morality is very low. The state doesn't have a right to exist. Science can provide, and this includes social science, um, provides an escape, or maybe coming across a truth that could be used to challenge the, the society. Well, political problems are discovered by philosophy. So natural philosophy can't just be good for the bad society. It has to be indispensable for the emergence of the very best one. The best society is based on it, but in turn, it's based on strict morals and state surveillance. We'll get to that, what that means here in, in a little bit. He does say, though, that science, both theoretical and to a lesser extent social, is only for the geniuses, for the privileged peoples, small group of, of thinkers, and he counts himself as, as a member of it. He concerned himself with the common man, not the mass so much, but he didn't see himself as one. It wasn't so much science that he attacked in the first discourse. Well, I mean, he did. But the evil was popular science, the diffusion of scientific knowledge to those who are not capable of understanding it. And when it's popularized, science then degenerates into opinion. As we know today, it's simply an ideological um, label. And it becomes an institution that believes it's the sole font of knowledge, not realizing how it's dependent on the virtue of the broader society. And this is the opposite. I mean, Condorcet, the French Revolution, Condorcet says that science alone speaks truth and must be brought to the basis of men through a new revolutionary educational system, which Rousseau, of course, completely rejects. He even goes so far as to want the truths of science to be kept secret from the common men. Because people who claim to be seeking truth for its own sake and are lying about it, they do more damage than the liar. Science is re renders everything relative, and it's a cause of moral collapse. Conflict between the individual and society requires, for him, new solutions. Science is a problem because the foundations of society may rest in the needs of the body, and yet philosophers can't stick with bodily issues for long. And it's precisely the so-called needs of the body, possessive individualism, that leads to societies being based on money and, and, and titles. Now, the ideas about how to reconcile science and virtue, um, we've mentioned two already. The first two, they're two different types of audiences, the common man and the true philosopher. But maybe there's more than one kind of science. There's a science that's incompatible with virtue, or a, a purely theoretical science, which is synonymous with idleness and inequality. What's compatible with virtue, of course, is something that leads to salutary truth. Science is the heart of the revolution. It, it's, it takes into itself logic and reason against prejudice. Laboratory science is only a, a piece of it. But he talks about a science that's compatible with virtue and he calls it Socratic wisdom. And it comes down to self-knowledge, the knowledge of one's ignorance and the critical self-reflection that begins in, in childhood. He says, 
in the first discourse, he says, are your principles not engraved in all hearts? And in order to learn your laws, is it not enough to go back into oneself and listen to the voice of one's conscience in the silence of the passions? There, you have true philosophy. Now, Socratic wisdom isn't the same as virtue. And he defines virtue as the science of simple souls, that is to say, non-intellectuals. Socrates obviously wasn't a simple soul. But as if to increase his anti-revolutionary point of view, he looked to Sparta as a basically imperfect embodiment of the just society. Socratic wisdom still is a preserve of a small minority. It's secondary. That what matters is what all men can become, and that is virtuous. It's the humble practice of virtue that matters. It sets a limit to everything else. He wants to defend the science of the simple souls with a conscience against all kinds of sophistry. And the sophistry he's talking about is generated by the passions, which he generally despises, that they could be rationalized in a rational institution. The passions create inequality. True philosophers have a function of being the guardians of, of virtue. They do have a job to enlighten the peoples, but only within these limits. But Socratic wisdom requires the entire theoretical science as its foundation. It's not intrinsically in the service of virtue, but it must be put into its service in order to be valuable. But it can only be valuable if it remains the preserve of the few who are naturally suited to it. It's a, a true intellectual aristocracy. There's a virtuous citizen in civil society, and then there is the natural man. Two very different people. If a city relies on virtue, then it cannot rely on science. Rousseau's Discourse on the Origin of Inequality deals with exactly this problem as to the connection between cognition and, and, and inequality or a stratified society. The social contract rests on the Second Discourse. And Rousseau very pompously claims that the Second Discourse is supposed to be a history of mankind. I mean, Helvetius did the same thing. Rousseau is a modern. I don't think he necessarily is a part of the Enlightenment. But in a very eccentric way, that doesn't mean that he's part of the classical world. Although, again, he did see the Greeks as his, as his standard. That's the only difference between man and the brutes is in the formation of ideas. Now, he does believe in the spirituality of the soul and reason, since, as he says, consciousness can't be explained physically. And he says it is not so much the understanding which constitutes the specific difference of man among the animals as his quality of a free agent. He does assume in the second discourse that free will is man's essence. But he refuses to base this on the body-soul distinction. So he replaces the concept of, of freedom, however defined, by human malleability, which revolutionaries call perfectibility. Man doesn't have a human nature. That's one thing that Rousseau accepts that is consistent with the French Revolution. That means any ideology can be hoisted on him. 
he doesn't want to have to fight the materialist versus spiritualist uh, battles. But his whole definition of free will depends on the soul. Same thing for consciousness. But the second discourse is an anthropological investigation. It's meant to be a physical investigation. And that's where he begins to talk about the state of nature. The phrase that he uses is natural right. That's the eternal realities of truth and justice to which all public life must conform. And it predates any conception of duty. In the classical world, that's found in human nature as a principle of reason. The classical and the medieval world. Now, for the moderns, including Rousseau himself, true right is found in human history, especially the doctrine of the state of nature, because there is no human nature. Freedom from the wills of others and a state dedicated to protection of this principle, that's the core of modern natural right. So either way, rights set limits to both moral and state action. So for John Locke, for example, right comes from the inherent property and in the products of labor, meaning that right belongs to the individual. That if you work on something, it becomes yours, Locke says is self-evident, and hence it becomes part of natural right. It doesn't depend on the laws, it doesn't depend on public opinion, it exists as a fact. Well, if Rousseau and many others rejected human nature after Machiavelli, especially after Hobbes, then where does right, how do you ground it? And he grounds it in the state of nature, the world prior to language, customs, religion, law, the state, anything like that. And that begins with Thomas Hobbes as the ultimate revolutionary, rejecting the classical tradition and the medieval tradition. Man qua man. What is man like outside of the institutions of society? Hobbes redefined natural law in such a way that it must have roots and principles which exist prior to reason's development. In other words, in the passions. That means it doesn't even have to be human. But at some point, passions develop into reason, which is another way of saying right comes before reason, which Plato and Aristotle would, you know, would be unintelligible to them. Thomas Hobbes finds this root, this grounding in the right to self-preservation, rather than in property, as Locke will do after, after Hobbes. Now that implies the right of each one each one of us to be the judge of how to preserve ourselves. But for Hobbes and Rousseau, the state of nature is a life of solitude. There is no society. There isn't even the drive to sociability. Man is born an embodied, passionate ego, despite Rousseau's claim that men are born free. The state of nature theories, they're trying to find man as man. And it's, it is a weak part of the, the theory. So if you reject human nature, and hence the idea that, that men are social, naturally, right can only be found in what man is like before the corruption of civilization, at least in Rousseau's case. Now, Rousseau rejects the state of nature of his two major predecessors, Hobbes and Locke. 
The problem that Rousseau has is that they never quite reach the true origin. They continue to rely on conventional or, or civic morals. They paint a picture of not the natural man, but the civilized man, maybe in the advanced stages of the state of nature. They include and import too many conventional maxims onto this long-lost age. They don't go back far enough. In other words, Hobbes and Locke try to establish the character of the natural man by looking at him as he is right now. But since man isn't social, you can't do that. Sociality is conventional, not natural. The concept of right in Rousseau then can't be natural, since as far as he's concerned, nature only so shows self-regarding action. Morality and civic life are not natural to man. So he accuses Hobbes of inconsistency because he denies that man is social by nature, but also tries to establish the character of the man before time, man before civilization, by referring to his experience of men already in society. You know, the, the age-old deconstruction. Where does this savage group of people ever get the understanding and the intellect to draw up a contract? State of nature leads to the social contract. Rousseau's state of nature, which is very different from Hobbes, tries to be as scientific as humanly possible. Hobbes identified natural man as savage, the barbarian. Rousseau does not. The savage becomes savage. He is not born that way. He's already molded by society. His core idea is what is the simplest operation of the human soul? In other words, mental acts that um, do not presuppose society. Because if it presupposes society, it can't be a part of natural man, since man is by nature solitary. You're noticing this may be a circular argument. In other words, he seeks to he seeks the core of right on what is immediate to man. And reason, of course, is not immediate. It's immediate. Hobbes and Rousseau agree that Natural right must be rooted in the passions, not reason. Rousseau has a conclusion that since Hobbes' criticism of the classical view is solid, one must question Hobbes' conception of the laws of nature. Not the right, but the idea that man's natural duties and social virtues have to be rooted directly in passion. Which is better, of course, than in reasoning or calculation. So Rousseau says the law of nature must speak immediately with the voice of nature, without intermediaries, including words or concept. It has to be pre-rational, based on natural sentiment. Reason, therefore, is the product of society, not something contained in human nature. Let me quote him from the second discourse. Let us conclude that savage man, wandering about the forest without industry, without speech, without any fixed residence, an equal stranger to war and every social connection, without standing in any shape in need of his fellows, as well as without any desire of hurting them, and perhaps even without ever distinguishing them individually one from another, subject to few passions and finding in himself all he wants. Let us, I say, conclude that savage man, the circumstance, has no knowledge or sentiment, but such as are proper to that condition and that he was alone sensible of his real necessities, took notice of nothing but what was in his interest to see, 
and that his understanding made as little progress as his vanity. Now, this is a summary of the, of the second discourse. Natural man, man prior to the savage state, is not free. But it does imply that natural man is good, that that is to say, is compassionate. If man is asocial, as Hobbes admitted, any pride in the state of nature presupposes society, because pride presupposes property and social hierarchy. So the natural man can't be proud or vain, as Hobbes and Locke contended. Pride becomes the root of all viciousness. So what Hobbes called the state of nature, Rousseau said, is a much later development. The natural man for Rousseau is man free from viciousness. It's the institutions of conventional society that the vices come into being. Natural man is swayed by self-love, self-preservation, but he is not subject to things that presuppose society like envy and pride. Pride and compassion are incompatible because in promoting our own reputations, we then are also insensitive to the sufferings of others. Even compassion can be effaced by society. So the power of compassion decreases at the same rate as civilizational refinement or, or convention. I mean, natural man is compassionate for Rousseau because the human race couldn't have survived if the powerful promptings of instinct had not been mitigated. The desire for self-preservation has two elements, the you know, procreation and compassion, two sides of the same coin. But he also says compassion is the immediate passion from which all social virtues derive. Man is good because he is swayed by self-love and compassion together. In other words, he's good only in that he's too stupid and uncivilized to do anything wrong. Cats and dogs, you don't call them good or evil, except by analogy. They simply do what occurs to them. For the same reason that the natural man lacks pride, he also lacks reason, and therefore he lacks freedom. Reason is has to arise with language, and of course language presupposes society. So reason couldn't have existed prior to civil society. To have reason means to have general ideas. That's different from things like imagination or memory. But general ideas, then, are not the product of a, a natural process. They presuppose, you know, uh, standard definitions, their very being, presupposing language. So if language isn't natural, then reason isn't natural either. And all of this rests on the assumption that at the dawn of mankind, men were not savage, but innocent simpletons, there are very few of them, mostly solitary. So Aristotle had defined man as a rational animal. Rousseau rejected it. Man in the state of nature, natural man, is not so much irrational, but pre-rational. And therefore, he doesn't have a comprehension of laws of nature. Natural man thus exists prior to morality in all respects. So he is subhuman. It doesn't make him wicked. 
He, he doesn't have the capacity for wickedness. There's no warrant in the state of nature for rule of one man over another. They're you know, wild, isolated individuals. They're not savages. But even the revolutionaries like Condorcet admitted the, the family in primitive times. But Rousseau doesn't even accept that. So his state of nature, man before civilization, it's a vision of a man who is equal to all others and independent of all others. Something like tyranny could only exist in civilization. Tyranny is specifically human. So man is by nature good. What does that mean? It means that in the state of nature, he's not human. He does not have reason. He doesn't have freedom except the freedom that an animal might have. Man is by nature good because he is malleable. He's capable of becoming which means that there's no natural constitution of man. Everything that we call human is acquired in society. It's artificial. So on the one hand, there's no, there's no obstacles to man's progress. You know, liberating himself from evil, which is very naive. But for the same reason, there are no obstacles to man's unlimited degradation. You know, human nature sets a limit to what a man could make out of himself. The rejection of that is a huge difference, if not the difference, between medieval and the modern. So the point of the second discourse is to explain where specifically human traits come from. So he makes the enormous assumption, again, this is a, a modern assumption he makes, that humanity, as we know it in civilization, is a product of accidental causes. He has to answer the question as to why you would leave the state of nature. For Hobbes, body and soul were non-existent. Everything is matter. Everything is body. He understood the process from the state of nature to the civil state as a natural one. Because he already assumed that man prior to civilization is already rational. In other words, a being capable of entering into contracts. One of the many weaknesses of, of Hobbes' system. The transition from the state of nature to civil society was the social contract. No, for Rousseau, he goes back farther. It's a purely accidental process. In other words, he leaves the state of nature due to a series of, of natural accidents. Rationality, and thus his humanity, is, is a uh, an acquired ability. I mean, once the elementary needs of bodily life are satisfied, reason emerges. And it emerges in the process of satisfying these physical wants. You know, Karl Marx uh, said the same thing. So, But this isn't just the satisfaction of bodily wants, which in the state of nature is very easy. You can't go back to a subhuman state of nature to find a standard. Now, Hobbes and Rousseau denied that man has any natural purpose. And therefore, the only place they can go to find a, a natural, solid basis of right is, in fact, in man's origin. So Rousseau rejected the very concept of trying to find the basis of natural rights in the, in the state of nature. Hobbes and Locke had done precisely that. Actually, 
what is specifically human and rational is an outcome of the struggle against nature. Now, history, a history based on struggle for a brief moment may have had a, a standard of right, but that also presupposes that the historical process is preferable to the state of nature. But if the historical process is an accident, it can't supply a standard at all. It can only be understood if there is an eternal principle outside of history that we can measure what the revolutionaries call progress, which Rousseau also rejects. I mean, you, you can't talk about something as, as progressive without already having knowledge of the purpose of the, of the process itself. The historical process, if it's going to be meaningful at all, has to culminate in the perfect knowledge of natural right objectively. So it's not the knowledge of the historical process, but knowledge of true right. That's what supplies man with the standard of justice. Natural right derives from how we perceive man's origin. It has nothing to do with man's nature. Rousseau seemed to suggest that the character of any law of reason is found, and we'll talk about this right now, in the teaching of his general will. And, and it's a general will is the result of the struggle to find a realistic alternative, a substitute for natural law. Man's desire transforms itself into a rational one by being generalized. We have our private wills. We have our private interests. That is the opposite of justice. The general will is an object, so to speak. It's intersubjective, but it's an object. When you reason about the common good, and if you are predisposed towards it, all of your fellow citizens doing the same reach the general will. And this is one of the more difficult elements of, of Rousseau's political theory. It's the core of his political theory. Like Hobbes and Locke, he believes in a social contract. Obviously, that's the name of his most famous book. Well, let me quote directly from it. This is a very, very common quote here. What man loses by the social contract is his natural liberty and an unlimited right to everything he tries to get and succeeds in getting. What he gains is civil liberty and the proprietorship of all he possesses. If we are to avoid a mistake in weighing one against another, we must clearly distinguish natural liberty, which is bounded only by the strength of the individual, from civil liberty, which is limited by the general will, and possession, which is merely the effect of force or the right of the first occupier from property which can be founded only on a positive title. What he means by positive title is through law. Rousseau wouldn't compromise with the original radical independence of individuals. And that's why he, despite all his criticisms of the state of nature theory, he kept it because it somehow grounded this very same assumption of rational, I should say radical, non-rational independence. For Rousseau, if there's a conflict between freedom on the one hand and self-preservation on the other, I should say, this is what Hobbes would say, self-preservation will take precedence. For Rousseau, it's the exact opposite. Freedom for Rousseau, however, is a higher good even than human life because it's really a condition for human life. 
once the state of nature is abandoned. Remember, freedom, virtue, these are two sides of the same coin. They, they imply each other. Now, in another modern concept, Rousseau argues that freedom is to obey your own law. This may sound a bit like Kant here, and it's not an accident. Kant, of course, not too long after this. So the origin of law is found in the man as, a, as an ego. So any collective arrangement has to be a contract of some type. Meaning, of course, that right itself, you know, justice, is conventional. It is not natural. Freedom isn't the condition of virtue. It is virtue. He argues that freedom, not reason, is what makes human beings different from the animals. He refused, as I said, to talk about the dualism of mind and body. I think just for the sake of, of simplicity. But science can't be possible unless we talk about man's creative action. But nature, for Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, is nothing but dead matter. You can't have freedom, however, if matter is all that exists. But what Hobbes argued in relation to science was applied by Rousseau to morality. The fundamental idea of freedom is to follow one's own law, but that has to be completely concomitant with everyone else. Freedom doesn't come from virtue. If, if you're going to make a distinction at all, freedom is prior, chronologically speaking. I started off by talking about the difference between the natural man and the freedom that natural man has versus what man in civil society and civilization has. In civilization, it's obedience to one's own law, to will generally, outside of one's private interests. In other words, autonomy, the subhuman freedom of an animal, well, that belongs to the state of nature. State of nature is blind appetite. It's the passions. It's immediate urges, which exist, but beyond that, have no moral basis. He wants to upgrade the freedom of the state of nature, but not through isolation, but through community. His famous line is that in civil society, everyone obeys only himself and remains as free as he was before, that is to say, in the state of nature. Now, this is weird, because Rousseau goes back and forth. Is natural freedom the model for civic freedom? Is natural equality the model for civic equality? This becomes a bit of a problem. The state of nature is slavery, slavery to the immediate passions, and that certainly isn't the freedom of civil society. Now, as I said before, the state of nature, man before civilization, you had two forces, two passions, self-preservation on the one hand and compassion on the other. Many things happened. These accidental things that brought man into civil society. It becomes necessary only at a very late stage as the state of nature begins to decay. But the decisive change is the weakening of, the, of, of compassion. And that's because of the emergence of private property, vanity, pride, money. 
the emergence of inequality. The destruction of independence comes from the dependence of many men on the few, oligarchy. Self-preservation is absurd under those conditions. That's the critical point. So at that point, self-preservation, which is inherent, an immediate passion, demands a substitute, an artificial substitute for compassion. Because as private property takes over, money, classes, compassion dissipates. It's easily rationalized away. So what we're talking about is substituting it with a purely artificial and conventional substitute for that. Self-preservation dictates that it come as close as possible to the original freedom to be achieved within society via reason. Now the right to preserve oneself from death in the Hobbes' system, in the state of nature in general, implies the right to whatever means are required to achieve it. But there also exists, and this is not just Locke, there does exist a natural right to the appropriation of property so long as it's through your labor. Now, that's not a legal right, but it is the foundation of it. Everyone has by nature the right to what he requires to survive through work, through your labor. Uh, especially the occupation of, of land and continuous cultivation does not create a property right. A property right is a creation of positive law. Now, this is the exact opposite of, of Locke. Land prior to civilization or, or law, land is seized rather than owned. The poor retain the natural right to acquire what they need for their self-preservation. Let me quote him again, and this is actually from the second discourse, or the discourse on the origin of inequality. The first man who, by having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You were undone if you once forget the fruit of the earth belonged to us all and the earth itself to nobody. If the poor are unable to appropriate what they need, because, say, everything has already been taken, they may use force. So the obvious conflict between those who had the energy to occupy the land, as Rousseau said, against those who must rely on violence. That's what transforms what was a peaceful society into that of warfare. Right has to be placed uh, or replace violence, and that peace be guaranteed through the convention. So you see how Rousseau rejects both Hobbes and Locke. Initially, his state of nature was independent, equal men, savages. I, I, I shouldn't even say that. Savages in, in, in a positive way. They were essentially animals. But at some point, private property came into existence. Private property is what led to the passions of envy and, and, and anger. And that's what leads to Hobbes' war of all against all. 
So neither Hobbs nor Locke. Of course, Locke is based on property. They don't go back far enough. But John Locke says that man has an unlimited right to everything which tempts him and which he can get, but that's in the state of nature. So the contract is what transforms your possessions found in the state of nature into actual legal property. And Rousseau criticizes Locke in that essentially it's, you know, real societies are rich against the poor. Political power rests on economic power. But self-preservation requires that this not be the case. So freedom in society exists only by the total surrender of everyone to the general will. There are all rights you you surrender to society. You no longer can appeal to it. You can't appeal to natural right. It's a purely intersubjective world. All rights in Rousseau's idea, they're social, they're conventional. They come from civilization, not from human nature. Natural right has to be absorbed by the law, and that's transformed into the social truth. The general will takes the place of natural law, but it also takes the place of the freedom of the state of nature. Now, he does use the word democracy, but but that's very misleading. Since Rousseau rejected parties, he rejected the existence of classes or any sort of faction. Basic equality has to be enforced, and... A strong moral code has to exist. And that's prior to any voting ever or social action. The private will has to be eliminated. Only then can you actually take part in in politics at all. The general will is the sovereignty, is the will of the nation. It's also indivisible. So governments have to be very close to the general will. Rousseau doesn't like the idea of voting for representatives. Governments can't be separate from the general will of the population. So Rousseau says, the social pact, far from destroying natural equality, substitutes, on the contrary, a moral and lawful equality for whatever physical inequality that nature may have imposed on mankind, so that however unequal in strength and intelligence Men become equal by covenant and by right. And that's out of the social contract. You can't have the general will in a society based on economic inequality. Economic inequality is based on self-seeking and self-interest, which Rousseau rejects. But self-interest is hard to get rid of. So his state has to be a strong one. He also argues that the general will can never be incorrect because, by definition, it's the willing of the good of the people. However, that doesn't guarantee that people always perceive what the good actually is. Even the general will is in need of some kind of enlightenment to save it from being just a collection of our private wills, as you know the American system is based on. Of course, there can't be any separation of powers if sovereignty is totally indivisible. But even enlightened individuals, I mean, they may see the good of society, but even then, there's no guarantee that they're going to promote it. And definitely, if it doesn't serve their private interests. But nobody could, you know, Locke included, it's a terrible idea to have calculation and self-interest 
as social bond. They destroy social bond. The people as a whole, as well as specific individuals, they are all equally in need of a guide. I'm going to quote from the second discourse here. Peoples once accustomed to masters are not in a condition to do without them. If they attempt to shake off the yoke, they still more estrange themselves from freedom, as by mistaking for it unbridled license to which it's diametrically opposed, they nearly always manage, by their revolutions, to hand themselves over to seducers who only make their chains heavier than before. This is one of the quotes that totally separates Rousseau from the French revolutionary tradition of people like Condorcet. Still, the general will comes into existence only after a lot of work. A people can't be assumed to understand true liberty or to, to possess the discipline to maintain morality. The general will requires this discipline. Seeking your private advantage, that's a powerful and, and immediate passion that has to be eliminated. The man who is concerned only with his private good, his self-interest, must be transformed into a citizen. But a citizen, by definition, is someone who prefers the common good to his own personal good. And that's where the concept of the legislator comes in. Leo Strauss interprets as the, the, the father of the nation. This is someone like Solon, a man of superior, not just intelligence, but morality, becomes the divine lawgiver, someone like Moses, who uses that kind of sanction to convince people of the, of the origin of those laws. That's what transforms anyone from a natural being into a, a citizen. There's no going back, of course, to the state of nature, to the laws and the general will is all we have. The legislator can be harsh, but only then can the conventional and subjective laws acquire the status, or at least the force, of natural law. Now, he may have to manipulate, I mean, Machiavelli is brought in through the back door here. because The legislator has to, has to convince the citizens of his mission that he has divine sanction. There has to be a living respect for what he calls the prejudice of antiquity. It, it has to survive public questioning. That is to say, science. The transformation of natural man into a citizen is artificial. It's harsh. It's the very problem of society. So society has to have some kind of awe-inspiring Legislator, the the um, the halo of the original laws. Society can only be healthy if the opinions um, that are brought about by society overcome our natural passions. Once reason enters into the picture, we have no choice in the matter. Rousseau comes right out and says, "Those." Ruling society has to obscure, has to mystify the foundations of the political system. In fact, a free society stands on mythology. Philosophy and natural science, they, they revolt against this. You know, again, this is Machiavellian 
But we're talking about people who will always have the pull of passion, which Rousseau hates. Now, the legislator himself is a problem. It may, he may lead people to worship the laws, not the full sovereignty of the general will. Someone like Solon or Moses is a problem because the laws and the institutions end up being the dominant thing, not the general will. Everything has to be referred to the general will, which is, by definition, general. We're not talking about specific policy. It has to be connected to it, though. The civil religion is what kind of takes the place of the legislator. He mentions it in a few places. But civil religion, connected entirely to the state, that's what's supposed to engender the sentiments that the citizen has to believe. Civil religion, and you saw this in the French Revolution, but Rousseau sees it as an ancient idea. You know, even lawgivers should invent supernatural origins for, for the same reason. They're not going to violate something that comes from God or the gods. It shouldn't really be a complicated religion. But something that can ensure that citizens remain where they are. To obey the general will, not the your own private will. You know, the cultures of, of antiquity all had this pantheon this ever-changing mythology to explain their origin. So worshiping these gods, if I've, as I've argued many times in the past, uh, isn't about worshiping actual beings, but those traditions that hold the people together. Not necessarily actual literal beings. The general will is a very difficult concept to define. I mentioned Kant. He comes the closest to making sense out of it. And willing the universal truth that could be followed by everyone without any contradiction is the foundation for not just the moral act, but for autonomy and justice. If you will something that can't be turned into a universal law, then it's wrong. Then it becomes heteronymous or self-regarding based on passion. That's as close as we're going to get to understand what the general will is. Those who are allowed to construct it are those who already take pleasure in the common good, not their own good, or they associate their, their private good with the common good. General will is the core of Rousseau's political theory, and it can be used either way. The notion of the, the general will was not part of the revolutionary tradition. In fact, there's only a small vanguard that gets to define this. And the constant use of violence, not in the sense of discipline, but in the sense of some kind of a passionate attachment. This is why free society is so extremely difficult to maintain. Because it's a constant war against passion. That is to say, your own self-interest. It's always very tentative. It's always very hesitating. But if Rousseau is going to play Sparta 
as the, albeit imperfect, model that he wants to follow because of the tremendous discipline that citizens, and the citizens in Sparta were a small minority. And if they maintain that discipline, then the general will can be manifest. In fact, Sparta for him is the closest that anyone's ever gotten to something like this. And all of this, with some exceptions I've already mentioned, taken together is the opposite of revolution, which in fact is based on passion and self-interest. I don't care what rhetoric they use. The French Revolution was nothing more than a middle-class revolt that had no real foundational ideology, I mean, other than the rights of man. But how these vague things are interpreted is what caused much of the, much of the violence. And of course, it failed miserable. Now, this is after, after Rousseau's death, but he would not have been shocked. There's a civic nation, and that's about it. They tried to engage in a, a, um, in a goddess of liberty, this kind of civil religion, which itself just seemed ridiculous and artificial. This doesn't negate what the general will is and our war against the passions. Thank you, everyone, for listening to me again. I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.